morning's text comes from the letter from Paul to the church of Rome, Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. But before I read this to you, I need to ask your attention to learn the context in which these words are written, for as in most Bible texts, context mean as much as the text themselves. You see, through the history of the church, the book of Romans has been known as probably the most profound theological treatise ever written in terms of Christianity. Paul sums up everything he knew in this extensive letter to the church of Rome, and especially about how it is God's act for us in Jesus Christ that relieves us, that justifies us, that forgives us, that saves us. First 12 chapters, or 11 chapters, are about that, and then the remaining five chapters are about now what do we do in response. Paul witnesses to what all of this means in his book in Romans, and how we are supposed to live together as a church in response to what God has done. Together, in harmony, in unity, he says, and this Advent at Riverside, when we gather as the church in purple, we do so because this is the color of Advent, violet, I guess you could say, but let's just stick with purple. It is the color of Advent, but it is also the color that one gets when you combine red and blue, as in red states and blue states, together. For Paul, purple was the color of the church. As anyone who's ever been raised in a family can attest, and that's all of us, living together is not so easy. Someone always wants to throw you off the island. But that is especially true when it comes to being a community of faith, a church. As I learned recently, there are over 38,000 different denominations in the Christian faith. Each one convinced that their own particular vision of faith or truth is more true than the other 37,999. Someone once said of Protestants, wherever two or more are gathered, you have at least three or more opinions. Churches split over every conceivable issue you can imagine, whether or not to sing Advent hymns in Advent or Christmas carols. Some of you, I know, were willing to split over that one. By the way, I picked this morning's two first hymns, so don't blame Lois. We split over the issue of communion, who gets it, who does not. Baptism, at what age, whether it should be sprinkled or poured or dumped. Every possible issue, as I said, is a possible opportunity for a church division. In Paul's day, it was a lot less complicated than that, but there were also divisive issues. There were those who were Jews who thought that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. There were those who were Jewish who did not think Jesus was the Messiah. And there were the Gentiles, those who were not Jewish by race or birth, who believed Jesus was the Messiah. Remember, Jesus and the disciples were all Jewish as was the early church. They followed all the laws of Judaism, the rituals, the customs, the purification, food laws, Sabbath laws, circumcision, and so forth. The only Bible they had to read was the Old Testament. That was the 
scripture Paul talks about. And then with Paul's own missionary work, he began to see that the promises of God include not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And so Paul brought them into the church. And as you would expect, this inclusion of the Gentiles caused great conflict. Should they have to obey all the laws just like the Jews? The food laws, the Sabbath laws, circumcision laws, and so forth. Now in this morning's passage, Paul is speaking to... In fact, in the chapter before this one, Paul, using language I think might be unfortunate, talks about those people in the church who literally and absolutely have the need to follow the purity, food, and uh, ritual laws of Judaism. And Paul calls them, and I think this is unfortunate, the weak. Those who absolutely concretely need to follow the law to the jot and tittle, Paul calls the weak. And those that can follow the spirit of the law, Paul says, in which case you don't need to be circumcised as a Gentile, Paul calls the strong. Again, I think that language is unfortunate. But what Paul does say is that it is the responsibility of the strong to be a good neighbor to the weak by not offending them and expecting them to give up their own ritual and law and need for that law. If one is strong, Paul says, in faith, then one needs to compromise one's beliefs for the sake of the weak so as not to cause conflict. Paul says this is what we do because this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Jesus gave up all pretense of power and righteousness, humbled himself for the sake of reconciliation and community. And for Paul, the whole point of Christianity was about reconciliation between God and us and each of us together. He hammered away at it. Unity, harmony, reconciliation, one body, even though we're different. And the thing is, he was not an, a romantic idealist. He truly believed that this unity was possible because of the power of the Holy Spirit. For Paul, the Holy Spirit was the ground of our hope that we could live together in unity, in community, without uniformity. And if that's true, then it naturally follows then when we do not live together in unity and harmony, we have not opened ourselves up enough to the power of the Holy Spirit to be led by it. Instead, we choose to lead off into a whole other denominational opportunity. Or not, as the case may be. We're not being led as much as leading, I think. Yet for Paul, hope still abounds that at least some of us can be led into unity. Now with that very long and complicated introduction, I almost lost the whole 8.30 church service on that one. You're still with me, I can tell. Let's listen to the words of Paul from the 15th chapter of Romans. He says, We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, 
The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. He took all of our insults on himself. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. He's talking about the Old Testament. So that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. And may the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus. So that together you may be one voice and with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised, that is the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God. Christ has become the servant of the Jews on behalf of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and in order that the Gentiles, that's us, may glorify God for his mercy. It is written, Therefore I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the people praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse shall come, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall have hope. And finally, this wonderful benediction, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. I have a confession to make. For some reason, going back as long as I can remember, I've always had a fear of not being included. Maybe this stems from my need to keep up with my idolized older brother who was two and a half years older than I am. He always seemed to have the right clothes. The first one I knew to have a burgundy-colored Gantt shirt and Oxblood Weegens. He was a good basketball player. He made good grades in school. He was the first child. I knew my parents loved him more. Just teasing. And he always seemed to have girlfriends. I wanted more than anything to be included in his group of friends, and I would hang around with them at every chance until he or one of them told me to buzz off. Of course, I tried to copy him in every possible way, hoping that that would include me in his group, or at least I would have my own group of cool people because I thought he was cool. And this was especially true when it came to the issue of being on the safety patrol. When he came home at the end of fourth grade with a white safety patrol belt and a silver badge, I was completely awed. I knew then that my life would not be complete unless I, too, made it to the safety patrol. He wouldn't let me touch his belt until my mother finally forced him to. I had to have my own. The problem was that at the end of third grade, I was a student at Dilworth Elementary School, and because of the issue of integration, my parents decided to move me from Dilworth to Myers Park Elementary, where there were no African-American students. I was basically lost in fourth grade. I didn't know those people. They were mostly fairly wealthy. They were socially on the highest rung. 
I felt inadequate. I knew I was not part of their group. I was not included in their little social events. And so I began to figure out if I could just be the class clown, I would receive some attention. And so that was my role. I became the distractor in class. I was the clown. It was some way to be included. When it came time for the award ceremony at the end of the fourth grade year, I knew that I was not going to be awarded much of anything except maybe most likely to receive. <laughs> I sunk down deep into my chair, humiliated at the whole prospect of Ed Pease and Ed Halls and Emily Weekly and Megan Fortenberry and Ansley Lee and all these other great people who were always at the front of things, getting the awards, while I got nothing. When the time came for safety patrol, they called out the names, Ed Pease, Ed Halls, Emily Wickham, and I sunk deeper into my chair, completely humiliated by the reality that I was not going to be included. Then they called my name. I had a teacher in fourth grade that saw something in me, I guess, that was worth redeeming. And so she gave them my name and they called it. And it was an out-of-body experience. <laughs> I really cannot remember walking up to the stage. I remember the emotion of it, but not the actual of it. Walking to the stage, getting my belt, my silver badge. I was so moved by this, so so blown away by the, by the gift of this that I resolved to be the best safety patrol person in the history of Myers Park School, and I made it all the way to sergeant by sixth grade. Ed Pease was captain, and Ed Hall was lieutenant. <laughs> what was that about? When my brother went to college, he tried to go become a fraternity brother in the Phi Delta Theta house, and he was blackballed by one person there, apparently, who had some vendetta against him. This was a big deal for him because my father was a Phi Delta and always wanted his boys to follow suit. So he got all the letters written and recommendations for Jim, and he got blackballed. Three years later, I go off to college. I resolved I'm going to get in the Phi Delta house. I put on my best social graces, my best fraternity-looking outfit. I start rush. I do everything I can to coax them into my great charismatic personality that I should be a brother of the bond. I got my father to write the letters, and I got in to the Phi Delta house. I've never been so proud in all my life. I got in. My brother didn't. What was that about? You know, the thing is, once you get into a place like that, you discover it's no big deal. I figured out that I had a choice. Either I could stay in the fraternity house or I could graduate from college. <laughs> I chose the latter, so I'm here before you. What a need I had to be included. Included in a place where my brother could not be. It occurred to me at some point in that that it was a little bit like Groucho Marx's remark. I'm not sure I want to be a member of a place that will let me join. And in fact, I ended up going inactive. It occurred to me that one of the 
biggest motivators in our life. Maybe the biggest. The links that we will go through in order to be included and accepted and acceptable. From the friends we choose to the churches we join to the cars we drive to the children we raise, being included and accepted is the biggest emotional motivation in our life. What's that about? The truth is we're barking up the wrong tree. The wrong tree in many ways. The tree that we think that gift of acceptance is in, we can't find it there. We can't find it there. We can't do anything to find it there. We can't earn it. We can't get it. You see, this is a soul-sized need in each and every one of us to be included. And it is really about our spiritual search for the ground of our being, that is God, to accept us and to let us know that we are included in God's realm of love and grace. This is the point. By virtue of God's grace, we are already included. We're already on the island, and no one can vote us off. This morning's passage, Paul is writing to the church, just like now, the church. In Paul's time, there were conflicts just like now. Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah, as I said, Gentiles, People who believe that you should be circumcised or not. Those who believe this is what it took to be included, and this is who would be excluded. Would Gentiles going to be in or not? Those who were like us, and those who were not. It seems to me that that's something true for every age in which we live. Certainly it was true in the civil rights struggle. Those who thought that they were included by virtue of their color, or their birth, or their race, versus those who have always been told that they were not included because of that. This was the whole point of segregation, to keep those inside, inside, and to keep those outside, outside, never to mix, because it's unacceptable. In the late 1950s and early 1960s in Birmingham. I'm from Birmingham, so I can say this. The ground zero for civil rights abuses was happening. The churches were in on it. Not all, but most. The Methodist Lay Committee was comprised of many members of the Ku Klux Klan who often met in Methodist churches, either to the delight of preachers or at least to their blind eye. And Presbyterians and Episcopalians, many of whom gathered together at their exclusive country clubs, justified their racism theologically through a complete misinterpretation of predestination. Well, God is the one who predestines all things. Therefore, God has predestined that I be born white and rich, and those who are not white and rich have been predestined to be other. Excluded. What's that about? The fact is, we will go to almost any link, 
and those of us who are thought to be included the most, do it the most. Paul tells us that God will go to greater lengths than this. Even for those of us, especially for those of us, not just on the outside, but those of us who think we're on the inside, who have such a need to be on the inside. Paul writes, Now therefore we are called to live together in unity and harmony, for this is the hope of all Christian community built on the way of Christ. And it comes to truth as we gather at the foot of the cross, and we discover that we are all humbled by the humiliation of Christ and the suffering given to us there. It's the grand level. Paul says this is our hope, not just a hope. It is, in fact, from time to time, a reality that, that inspits and starts in ways unexpected. We can live out in unity together through and in people we would never imagine. In response to the death of Nelson Mandela, I read the New York Times front page article on his life. The picture was as powerful as anything I've ever seen. It was Mandela's face illuminated by a light from a distance, and the rest of the complete background was black, as if he was the light shining in the darkness. It took me about 40 minutes to read this article. I've never seen so much in one newspaper. I, I read about his growing up, his history, his three marriages, his clay feet, his incredible courage, the influences in his life from his father, the tribal chiefs, his education in the Methodist missionary church was mentioned in one line, just mentioned, typical of the New York Times, as if that didn't matter. But it did, of course. It was not incidental to who he was and what he became. Because the truth is that Mandela was a deeply devoted Christian. The first thing he did when he was released from prison is to go to the largest stadium in Johannesburg and have a worship service. His Christianity was the seed of his understanding of reconciliation and hope. The vision for overcoming apartheid, which means apart from, sound like segregation? was formed in the vision of God where lion and lamb and leopard and kid will lie down together on all God's holy mountain and a little child shall lead them. And although he did not fulfill his vision, he changed the rules of the game. This morning's passage near the end of his letter, Paul summarizes everything that he has written everything he knows by explaining that the hope is for inclusion of all of us, black and white and gay and straight and rich and poor and male and female and Jew and Greek and Republican and Democrat. Through the steadfast encouragement given to us by God in Jesus Christ, and he says, this is finally made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit because of what God has done.
and not because of who we are or have done, good or bad, we are given the assuring, inclusive hope that we are part of God's reign and kingdom. This is our hope. This is the basis of all unity and community. If you've ever been in that place, when you come together with someone that you've been separated from because of argument or hurt or loss or anger, when you've come back together and reconciled and uni unified again, if you've ever been there, there is no joy greater in heaven and earth than that. Therefore, may God, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you too may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us come together with the gifts of our lives and